This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as, as we just sang, our desire here this morning is to praise you. The heights and the depths, and the length and the width, your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, we don't want that to stop now. Uh, we, we want that to grow. As we look to your word, Father, I pray that you would show us. Show us who you are. Show us who we are in a very real way. So that we can uh, grow in our desire to to praise the Lord. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. We're going to be in Acts. We're going to start in Acts, I should say it that way. Chapter 21, verse 17, if you have your Bibles. You want to turn there. Uh, where we're going to see this morning a, a threefold defense of the gospel. Now, I know that many of you have been in court for one reason or another. Most of you adults have probably participated in jury duty at one time or another where the prosecutor tries to figure out if you'll convict someone, even if you don't know them, and the defendant or the defender will try to figure out what rock you've been living under. You've, you've been through that whole process. Some of you have perhaps been on a jury. Some of you might have been witnesses, especially those of you in here who are in law enforcement. <clears throat> some of you might have even been the plaintiff. Uh, but there are also some of you, who will remain nameless, who have been a defendant in the courtroom. And here's the thing. If, if you've been on jury duty or a plaintiff or a witness, you understand, but you've still been outside of the weight, the real weight of what's going on in that room. But if, if you've ever been a defendant, you can attest to the gravity of being seated on the left-hand side of the courtroom. Unless you're a, a psychopath, the, the, the weight of that room of strangers talking about your future, it's hard to describe. Uh, being the only person standing when you state your plea listening to different witnesses and lawyers dig into the most intimate details of your life, uh, the eternity that it can take, it can feel like it takes for the judge or the jury to declare the verdict. Only a, a hardened criminal doesn't feel small by the weight of those moments. Well, from here out in Acts, Paul is going to spend the majority of the rest of his life seated on the left-hand side of the courtroom under the weight of being a defendant. For the, for the last seven chapters of Acts, Paul is going to be defending. Now, we know that Paul is innocent. So how will he respond? What will be his defense? What will he want to defend? That's what we're going to see this morning. And we're going to see Paul in front of three juries this morning. And the first jury 
will be a jury of Paul's peers. In chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one, this is Paul, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, this is the, the Jewish church saying to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses's, to, excuse me, to forsake Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may, they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what, you have been what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So James is happy to see Paul. But the rest of the Jewish Christians, not so much. James says, they've been told that you don't keep the law and, th and that you're teaching the Gentiles not to keep the law. Now, the first thing I want you guys to, to imagine is how painful this must have been for Paul. The Holy Spirit testified to him about how difficult it was to go to Jerusalem but I begin to wonder, even the very first interaction that he has there, was this beyond his expectations of that suffering and that pain? Remember, they had brought a huge donation from the Gentile churches. But I want you to think about what that meant back then. They didn't have cashier's checks and electronic transfers. They had coins. So if you think about a gift coming from several different churches, some of them very affluent, this gift for the Christians in Jerusalem came by way of some number of heavy sacks of coins. And in all probability, that effort of Paul's to unite the Gentile and the Jewish church, to show the Jewish church that, that the Gentiles care about you, that effort of Paul's is probably sitting on the floor there in the room while James is telling him, they don't trust you, Paul. So there isn't much room to see this meeting as anything but difficult, if, if not ugly. Now, to be fair, we, we have to answer the accusation at hand here. Was Paul actually teaching people not to follow the law? Had he been teaching the Gentiles to disregard the law? Well, he had told them that the Jews had been delivered from the law of Moses in the sense of they have been delivered from the ceremonial and ritual laws because Christ had, had fulfilled them all perfectly. Think about it this way. Imagine you were at a party and at this party, the Mona Lisa was on display. Clearly not a party I would ever be invited to, but bear with me. The, the, the amazing thing about Mona Lisa that, that has always 
historically has, has been the description of her is not only the, of the anatomy, the perfect part of the painting, but the emotion and the beauty that's involved in her face. The, the mystery of the Mona Lisa is how different people can read different emotions into the same face. It's, it's, um, it's, the, it's the amazingness of the painter to, to paint her inexpressive expressiveness, put it that way. People see different things in her face. Some people see happiness, some people see sadness, some people see contentment, some people see reflection. It's an amazing thing. But now, imagine as you're at this party, Mona Lisa herself walks into the room. Now that you have the real thing in front of you, what purpose would that painting serve? Now, you don't have to wonder what she's feeling or what she's thinking. You, you know. Well, in a similar way to that, what the sacrificial and the ceremonial law had done was it had painted a beautiful portrait. It was a portrait of cleanliness and of innocence and of holiness and of sacrifice. But it was never intended to be more than a portrait. A portrait of Jesus. So now that he has arrived, there's no need for that portrait anymore. That's what Paul had been teaching the Gentiles. But none of that really matters because Paul has been subject to about a a 20-year-long whispering campaign. Now, verse 25 is really important, lest we get our theology out of whack. James says, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent them that letter that they wrote back in the beginning, um, that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from blood. And if you remember that whole story, what, what's going on here is the elders in Jerusalem still affirmed the finding of the Jerusalem council. They're, they're not caving on justification by faith. The, the issue is not, do Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved? Nor is it, are Jews different than Gentiles because they're saved by keeping the law? The answer to both of those is no. The issue that James is bringing up here is, is can Jews keep observing the law even after they're saved? So, so these guys that James is talking about, these men that, that he wanted Paul to, to go with, had probably made a Nazarite vow. It was a voluntary vow of thanksgiving. And the way you would do it is you would grow your hair out long for some number of months, and that would be the, the visible sign of your thanksgiving to God. And then when you were done with that, to show that you were done with that vow, you would go to the temple, cleanse yourself, shave your head, and your vow would be over. So in addition to these guys being done with their vow, according to the Jewish Christians, Paul needed to purify himself because he had just come back from Gentile places. He was unclean. So basically what James is saying is this, Paul, we can kill two birds with one stone here. You need to be purified. They want you to be purified. And while you're there, give these guys some money for a haircut. We think it'll go a long way with the Jews accepting you. To, to put it in other words that, that, that James is kind of saying, like, like, Paul, could you tone it down on your freedom just a little bit while you're here? Ixnay on the bacon, you know, while you're in Jerusalem, we think it would help. So what's Paul going to do? He's being asked to go to the temple and basically observe a ritual ceremony and be part of a ritual ceremony. What he's been telling the Gentiles, he's no longer needed. Is he going to shake the dust off of his feet like he had done so, so many times in other synagogues that he had been to? Or, or is he going to forsake his freedom to not participate in some of these ceremonial trials? Where would he draw the line? I'd ask you what you would do 
if someone said that to you? Before we look at his response, I want to read to you what he wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 9, verse 15, Paul said this, But I have made no use of any of these rights. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win, might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may, might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you want to take a guess at what Paul did? I think it's amazing. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Paul wasn't going to forsake the gospel. He also wasn't going to abandon the church. Simply for the sake of his own freedom from these rituals. So, so what Paul was willing to do was to put his reputation and his dignity and his freedom aside for the sake of the gospel. He was willing in a very, very real way to live out what he had written in 1 Corinthians 9. To become all things to all people that, that by some means he might win more of them to Christ. He might become a better instrument of the gospel. Now, absolutely, these Jewish Christians were weak in faith. But Paul was willing to lay aside his freedom in order to accommodate their weakness so he might be able to bring them to a deeper place in their faith. A theologian named F.F. F. Bruce said it this way. He said, freedom goes both ways. A man who is truly free is not in bondage even to his own freedom. Meaning a truly, a truly free person can set aside their freedom for the sake of the gospel. That's Paul's first defense of the gospel. He's saying the gospel isn't a slave to the freedom it provides. The gospel is about having the freedom to freely sacrifice those freedoms if it helps you win others to Christ. And this isn't anything new. Just think about Jesus for a moment. When the Trinity was coming up with the plan of redemption, how did Jesus respond when God the Father was like, okay, Jesus, you're going to have to let Mary change your diaper because you won't be able to control your bowels. Was Jesus like, okay, um, Father, this is getting out of control. I'm going to have to draw the line somewhere. I mean, before you know it, you're going to be telling me I've got to go to middle school. This is too far. Is that how he responded? No. For the sake of the gospel... The creator of the universe willingly gave up his place in heaven, not just to be with us, but to become one of us. 
Paul's defense before a jury of his peers is that the gospel is not subject to the freedoms it provides. It's the opposite. Those saved by the gospel willingly lay down those freedoms in order to become all things to all people. Let me give you some examples of what this might look like today. So you can understand the depth of what Paul is doing. Because if we really grasp what Paul is doing in the Jewish mindset, it should make us uncomfortable. Think about it this way. For example, what if there was a group of professing Christians who were weaker in the faith than you? And in order to be a part of them, they thought you should get baptized again. Would you be, would you be willing to do that, to be baptized again with the hope of gaining the credibility to explain to them why you don't need to be baptized again? Or would you feel the need to refuse and sever the relationship because they're not right? Could you forego your Christian freedom to, to consume alcohol for the sake of a brother or sister who has struggled in the past? And everyone would say, absolutely I would. But listen, are you even sensitive to that? Do you even check or ask or does your freedom just run roughshod over people that you don't even know? <clears throat> your freedom doesn't even cross your mind or the freedom someone else might not have. Could you and your family participate in a costume party at Halloween or an egg hunt at Easter in order to grow closer to people who needed the gospel? Or what if you were out to dinner with some folks and praying before a meal made them feel very uncomfortable? Could you forego praying before a meal in order to build your relationship with someone? Or what if worse, they asked you to eat kale? Now, none of those things are wrong by any means. In, in fact, I would say most of those things are good. Except for the kale. I'd stick to your guns on that one. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, do the freedoms provided for us by the gospel constrain our ability to spread the gospel or free us to spread the gospel? Said another way, are we willing to lay down our gospel freedom for the sake of the gospel? That's Paul's first defense of the gospel to a jury of his peers. The gospel allows him to be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Let's keep moving because Paul's doing another courtroom. This time before a jury of his people. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, were stirred up. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, these guys didn't just come to pick on Paul. They're probably there for the feasts and they're like, hey, there's that guy. And then they started up this commotion. But nevertheless, look at verse 28. And they crying out, these men, they said, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he means the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And it got so bad that the Roman tribune came and arrested Paul and took him back to their barracks, partly to, to figure out what was going on and partly to pr protect Paul. 
Now, now this tribune thought that Paul was this Egyptian guy that had recently stirred up a bunch of trouble in Jerusalem. But Paul explains, no, I'm not that guy. And then Paul says, look at verse 39. Paul replied to the tribune, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, mentioned, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So this tribune, he needs to figure out a way to calm things down. So he's more than willing to let Paul try to talk to these people again and see if he can smooth things over. But he didn't know Paul very well because this is so Paul. If you look back at the beginning of verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him. We've seen this a couple of times before where Paul begs for another opportunity to speak to the people who are trying to kill him. But he gets permission. And he begins in verse tw uh, chapter 22, verse 1. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicily, but brought up, this is important, but brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. How zealous was I, he asks. And he goes on to talk about how he had persecuted Christians. He had gotten letters to go to other cities to persecute Christians. You lazy Jews don't even leave this city. I was going to other places to persecute the way. Now, when he gets to Damascus, he talks about seeing Jesus. He says, but on my way to, to, to deliver one of those letters to bring Christians back, I saw a bright light, he says in verse 7. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and Saul asked his questions, and then he, Jesus said, rise and go to Damascus. When, when Paul gets to Damascus, he met Ananias, who gave him his sight back. And Ananias said this to him. Look at chapter, uh, verse 14. And he, that's Ananias, said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash, your, wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, approving, watching over the garments. And Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, let me just point out a couple of things about this text so you can see what Paul is, is saying. Notice, notice first that Paul's speech to these people is bookended by his Jewishness. At the beginning, he talks about being brought up in Jerusalem and trained under Gamaliel, and that's a huge deal. You could be a Jew who lived somewhere else in Judea, or you could be a Jew who lived in Jerusalem. And that was a big difference. A, Drew in, a Jew in Jerusalem was far Jewier than, than a Jew somewhere else. It was a big deal. But he wasn't just raised in Jerusalem. He was a Jew that was raised in Jerusalem and, and taught by Gamaliel. The, 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 a couple hundred years later, um, some rabbis wrote in the Talmud 
that no one explained or spoke of the beauty of the God, of the of the Old Testament like Gamaliel. He's one of the, he's probably the best well-known rabbi of of Israel's past. It, it would be like an American saying they learned how to be an American from George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And then Paul says basically the same thing at the end of his speech. He says to Jesus, they know how zealous I was. I mean, I oversaw the stoning of Stephen. So don't miss the irony of what Paul is saying to these people. Basically, anyone in this crowd claiming to be zealous for the law couldn't outdo Paul. They were beating a man for violating the law who was far more zealous for the law than any of them were. If anyone there in Jerusalem had the right to boast of their Jewishness, it was Paul. So, next, now, look at the description of Jesus in the middle with Ananias' conversation. Look at verses 14 and 15. Ananias said to, to Paul, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. So Paul is saying, listen to this, my zealousness for the, for the law, my holiness, my righteousness under the law was more than yours until I saw the righteous one, capital R, capital O. When I saw him, it was clear that even my righteousness was worthless. He's saying, I know why you guys are so upset. I get it. But when I beheld the righteous one, capital R, capital O, I realized my righteousness was dung. Now, here's why I want you to see that. I want you to see that because I want you to see again that Paul is not defending himself. He's defending the gospel. They, they, they have him on trial and he's not defending himself. He's defending the gospel. He's explaining that he now recognizes that his immense pride in his righteousness as a Jew, zealous for the law, which is what these people were accusing him of lacking, that zealousness was what was going to damn him without Jesus Christ. He's saying that it was in spite of my Jewishness that Jesus spoke to me. If you notice in verse 17 and 18 where Paul was, he says, I was in the temple when the risen Jesus spoke to me. He's saying to these guys, God wouldn't allow something he didn't approve of in his own house. Paul was more concerned with defending the truth of the gospel than his own reputation. That Jesus Christ had, had risen from the dead and was alive and it appeared to him. That was truth. They would either accept it or not. And he wasn't going to say anything different. Paul was more concerned about defending his Christian patronage than his Jewish one. He's not defending himself. He's defending Christ. So in our lives, think about it this way. I want you to see that here. It wasn't Paul who was on trial. It was the gospel that was on trial. When Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, in verses 11 and 12, he said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, when Jesus said that, what he meant 
He expands on it later in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. He said, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity not to defend yourself, but to bear witness. Listen to this, verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Think about that. Jesus is saying we're not supposed to think about how we would answer if accused for the gospel. Why would Jesus say not to think about it? I mean, shouldn't we be prepared? Here's the thing. What does meditating on that exhibit? It displays our anxiety over being accused, not our love for the gospel. But if our thoughts are focused on our love for Jesus and his gospel, then when we're called to answer, that's what will be on our lips. That's the answer he'll give us to witness to him. Right now, at this very time, Christians are beginning here in America to be seriously questioned and accused of being intolerant and narrow-minded and prejudiced and bigoted. Is that what we're focused on? The attack against us? Or are we focused on the beauty of the grace of the gospel? Because I can tell you this, one will tempt you to defend yourself and the other will lead you to proclaim the gloriousness of the grace of God. Paul's defense before the jury of his people was when I saw the righteous one. And we need to be prepared to give the same defense. However, as per usual, this doesn't go well. In chapter 22 and verse 22, Luke writes up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, that's, that's language about they were getting ready to stone him. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? The little Columbo thing there. Just... Just one more question. I have to wonder. I don't know why this stuff interests me, but reading in between the lines, I have to wonder what that, that Roman guard thought when he stretched out Paul for the whips and saw his back. And he realized this isn't something new to this man. Nevertheless, Paul explained that he was a, a Roman citizen. And if you look at verse 30, but the next day, desiring to know the reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So here's what's going on. Basically, a Roman citizen could not be convicted for an accusation made by a non-citizen. A Roman could only be convicted for an accusation from another Roman. And, and by this point in time, a Roman citizen could not be tortured to extract information. So the reason this tribune is so, so concerned is because he's on the verge of, of, of committing what we might call a civil rights violation, which was just as big a deal back then as it is now. 
But this leader still really needed to figure out if there was something legitimate going on because every leader in Jerusalem was tasked with one impossible task as to keep the peace. And by this point, Jewish nationalism is just overboiling. In fact, in, in just a few years, the, the Jewish revolt of 66 and 67 AD is going to take place that would eventually bring the Romans to level Jerusalem permanently. So Jerusalem is just always on the edge of boiling over. This guy's got to figure it out. This tribune still needs to figure out if all of this was over some legitimate breach of law or was this just some religious squabble between the Jews. So he brought Paul to these religious leaders where he was hoping they could get out of him what was wrong. So we see in this last one, it's a jury not of his peers nor of the people, but this is a jury of the priests. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? I like Paul. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, and I, I think this is legitimate. I think Paul didn't recognize that he was the high priest. And Paul legitimately repented. He said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Notice again, it's not me, it's the gospel. Verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune had to step in again, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, and commanded the soldiers to take him back to the barracks. Now what I want you to see in Paul's last defense is this, that the gospel judges... Here's what's going on. The Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural, anything spiritual. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels, none of that. But the Pharisees did. And this was a huge point of contention between the two. It, it would be like if you were on trial in the U.S. Senate and you stood up and you said, I thought Trump was a good president. It'd just tear the place apart. Everybody would just start arguing and it would just be this huge thing. It would just disintegrate in arguments all over the place. It would just quickly be a fight. I want you, though, again, put yourself in Paul's shoes. He has so looked forward to this time in Jerusalem. He's collected all this money as a gesture of goodwill to the, the Christians who were impoverished in Jerusalem. He's trying to unite them in the Gentile church that he had been called to reach. But now he sits in a jail cell because the Romans were the only ones who would protect him from his own kinsmen. I have to ask, where was James in this narrative? Where were the other Jerusalem elders? Did Luke just not include what they said in this or, or were they absent too? Either way, Paul sits alone in a Roman jail cell because the people he loved so much wanted him dead. 
But that's just the beginning of what he must have been experiencing, the sorrow and the pain he must have been experiencing. A few months earlier, while he was waiting out the winter in Corinth, Paul, Paul had written this to the Romans. In Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, that's through Christ. For I could wish, listen to this, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying, if I could give up my salvation for my kinsmen, I would do it. So not only did they hate him, but what Paul is experiencing in real time, what he knew was worse, was that they hated him because they hated his Savior. Paul desperately wanted his fellow Jews to believe, and, and what must have weighed heavier on his heart than their hatred of him was how obvious it was that they rejected the only one Paul knew could save them. Paul forsook his own defense in order to present and defend the gospel in all of its glory to these people, and he knew they would be judged for their rejection of it. Imagine the pressure on Paul to give in just a little bit so that his kinsmen might understand. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a high-standing Pharisee before he became a Christian. And Luke tells us, if you look back at verse 1, that when he stood before this group of leaders, he looked intently out at them. No doubt, as Paul looked out into this crowd, he saw men that he knew well. How do I know this is what Paul was feeling? Because look at what happens in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As we see these events pile up in the life of Paul, culminating in this rejection by his own people, Luke is begging us to ask, what in the world could have drove Paul to these lengths? How could Paul abandon his own reputation to cleanse himself in the temple? How could Paul beg the, the Romans to speak to the crowd that just tried to kill him? How could Paul hold fast to the truth while he knew it was going to damn his people? And the answer is very simple. We, we need only go back to where all this began. Paul had seen Jesus. He'd seen the risen Christ. And that fueled a lifetime of strength and courage and endurance for the gospel. Did you know there's someone else who had a similar experience to Paul, but they gave us a little more detail than just a bright light? I want you to listen to how they described what Paul saw. He said, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw 
one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like glowing bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of a thousand waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. And just like Paul, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, he laid his right hand on me. He said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Brothers and sisters, that is the one who Paul saw. That is the one who Paul says would give, he'd give his life to know. That is the one who Paul said he knows he serves. That's the one who, who spoke to him that night in that jail cell. If we could comprehend just a fraction of what Paul did, we would know the question is not how could Paul do this, but how could Paul not sacrifice everything to testify to the glory of his Savior? We would know that's the right question. And I want you to listen very carefully because the truth of the matter is this. You and I right here this morning can know the righteous one who Paul knew. We can know his glory and his majesty and his beauty. We can know his grace and his mercy and his love. We can see his power and his might and his radiance. This book is not just words on pages. When you read this book, you can feel the hand of Christ on your shoulder when he tells you not to be afraid. The weight that tells you that his arm is mightier than anyone else's. When you read this book and you hear him talking about you standing against the forces of evil, you can see his eyes blazing. The fire. When you read this book, you can hear him talking about seeking the lost. You can see his tears running down his face. When you wonder if you'd ever be righteous enough, if, if you keep falling into a sin and you read this book, you can see him on the cross crying out, it is finished. It is the very power of the living word who Paul knew. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. He means through the gospel that's found in his word, that we beholding the glory of the Lord, we all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The power of God in His Word is so strong that through it, He's changing you and I into people like Paul. He's growing you and I into those who will give up everything for the sake of our Savior. He's transforming us into those who will gladly spend nights in jail. 
those who, who will beg to talk to people who just tried to kill us. He's transforming us into those who want nothing more than to spread the good news of him at all costs. The power of God through his word is turning us into people like Paul. I hope you would want that. Do this. Would you stand with me? Because I believe that if Paul were here this morning, if, if he were standing there right next to you, he would be thrilled to be in a room full of people who believed. To be among those who love his Savior like he did. He would be thrilled to be in the company of those who don't reject him, but join him in worshiping and glorifying a Savior like ours. I believe that if Paul were in this room this morning, standing here next to us, his fellow defendants, he would be so excited to sing something like this. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love and what depths of peace. When fears are stilled and when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here, right here in the love of Christ I stand. Let's sing that together.